I saw that Roger Federer was one of he's he's part of the uh, the Billy Athlete Club. So there's Roger like, Federer think, is five athletes who have made a billion dollars: Tiger Woods, Floyd Mayweather, LeBron James, Ronaldo, and I think Michael Jordan, maybe Messi. So that might be six. I think it's five. Um, and now Federer is in that club. The whole Adam Levine thing's ridiculous. It's just like, is that in like the Santa's fake section of the newspaper as well? It's just like the most obvious, like people are like acting like it's like a big deal. It's like, dude, what do you expect? What, look at the guy. Of course he cheats. <laughs> I don't even know the story. Why did he cheat? I don't know. Not he's, why. Like what, what's the controversy? Like did he do something really crazy? I, I only read the headlines. I think he just texted like texted or instagrammed like his yoga trainer and said i want to roll around naked with you all day and then he texted this other lady that says oh. like um you know like he like said like hey like i want to go out with you like I, why are you so hot or something like that and then later on weeks later he texts and says hey my wife's pregnant and we're gonna name the baby your name is that cool with you which is super freaking weird but uh i don't know if he did anything <laughs> wrong like legally but he's just you know just doing what like guys with like body tats who live in la do you know you just cheat <laughs> like you could he's got the face of a cheater right i mean this at is the, obvious at the bottom of your tattoo sleeve is just a place to put your number it's like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wouldn't have got this sleeve as a married man if i wasn't trying to you know play the game dude speaking of bros i think i've just invented something i've been doing this for the past few weeks i call it uh like fitness dip so you know how like you know people dip like tobacco they put like uh stuff in their lip lately uh I've, yeah. You know, yeah. like chewing tobacco. You put it in your lip. Uh, I've heard like, of it, but you're yeah. the only guy I know who does it. Yeah, just like a fat lip. Lately, what I've been doing is just putting in... Have you seen PB Fit? It's like powdered <laughs> peanut butter. Yeah, that stuff's great. I love that. Dude, I just get a, like a tablespoon of it, and I just stick it on the roof of my mouth, and I'll just suck on it for like an hour. And I just, it's, it's my fitness dip, and it just keeps me like... From it's like, like a pacifier for you. Yeah, it keeps you. It's like chewing gum almost. <laughs> like you know, you can't eat anything because you got that in the roof of your mouth, and you're just sucking on it real slowly. That's my new fitness dip. It's All right. So, how do you get an idea like this? Like, I'm not saying it's. A, I'm not saying it's probably doesn't taste good or it might be therapeutic or whatever. But why are you like you know what? Something need to. I need something on the top of my mouth. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? PB Fit powder. All right. I'm gonna like. I've never even wanted to put anything on the top of my mouth, nor have I just. Taking foods and be like, what if I stuck this here for an hour? Would that be better than just eating it? Because I go to the store and I just like look at all the products. I look at new stuff and it says to add water. And I'm like, what if I don't? What if I just eat this as plain powder? And I did. A rebel without a cause over <laughs> <Yeah>. here. <laughs> I don't know. I just tried it. I did. It was interesting to me. It, it, it just add water? Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it works. It works. You should try it. I definitely will not. Uh, all right. So what do we got today? You Dude, got ideas? I, I've you got, got a, topics? I've got a ton of stuff. Let me, uh, we can start off with something. Uh, one thing that's like, I don't know if this is actually interesting or not. You tell me. But basically, I'm reading this book called More Money Than God, and it's about the history of hedge funds. You know anything about hedge funds? Not, not a lot. Tell me. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm only in the first half of the book, so I can't tell you much about how they operate now, but because, you know, we're still in like the 1980s. But basically, the guy who invented it was called a hedged fund, and his name was Alfred Jones, Alfred Winslow Jones, A.W. Jones is what they called him. And he, it's kind of interesting. He was a journalist for Fortune. You know, he was just a writer. It's crazy that Fortune even existed back then. This was in like the 30s and 40s. And for some reason, for some reason, 
hedged fund is so funny to me. <laughs> that's what it that's what it was called. It I know was, it's I know it's real, but for some reason it just seems like something we would just say wrong, <laughs> trying to be smart, but like, yeah, I'm I'm looking at investing in some hedged funds. Yeah. And people would be like, is he putting a D at the end of that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, you know, go out there, have fun and break an egg. You know, just <laughs> 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 just All right, a, continue on. so it's called it was called a hedged fund and he was researching for an article stock pickers and he found this like small group of people that were doing like some slightly different stuff with hedge funds or with stock picking and at the time like basically rich people viewed wall street and a lot of like equity investing as just a way to preserve wealth not really grow wealth and this guy aw jones he was in his 40s journalist and he goes Oh, with these, you know, small group of people that I'm researching, this like mathematical formula stuff that they're doing, it's actually really, really interesting. And so he raises, I think, $100,000 at the time. And what he does is basically uh, the kind of dumb way of explaining it is, which is the only way I understand it, uh, is that he just like does a combination of longing, going long on things with borrowing leverage, meaning if he invests $80,000, he would borrow another $50,000. Now he's $130,000 into a stock. Then with the rest of his $100,000, he would buy shorts in such a combination where his upside was much higher and his downside was a little bit protected. And there was like some math behind it. And at the time, this was revolutionary. But here's where things get actually really cool. That itself wasn't the revolutionary part. I mean, that was one part of it, but it wasn't the main thing. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. There's no secret formula for customer service, but there is an all new service hub from HubSpot and it's bringing service and support together in one platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible. You can free up your customer support reps time with an AI powered help desk so you can easily support and grow your customer base. The secrets out service hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. A really cool thing that he did, which wasn't done ever before, is he hired these young stock pickers. And instead of just giving them a salary, he goes, all right, you work for me. I've raised a million dollars. You get 50,000. You get 50,000. You get 50,000. You get 50,000. You can go and hire two people to work with you. You're your own group. You're your own group. You're your own group. And uh, get after it. Let's see what you can do. Uh, the person who does least best or the person who does worst, you guys are out. And he created this like cutthroat culture of these people who were just getting after it. And he was the first person that made it. So you they were only paid a percentage, so 20% of future upside. And at the time he did it because they, that was that just means your your tax more uh uh it was more beneficial for you. It wasn't income tax, it was a capital gains tax and your tax benefits were like way greater. But he told his folks, he goes, yes, the reason we're doing this is Phoenician sea captains used to keep a fifth of the profits of successful voyages. And that's like how we like he didn't say, Psh, hey, it's uh, just so we can for this tax thing. But like he like justified <laughs> this weird reason. But anyway, this team structure, that's what like changed everything. Prior to that, Wall Street was just like this stodgy, sleepy place of like, look, we're just doing 80% stocks, 20% bonds, and we just let it sit there. But then he, once he changed that incentive structure, everything changed. And that kind of got me interested. That That's kind of like been sitting with me because at The Hustle, we used to do this too, where uh, for our quotas, for our salespeople, we would say, you know, go out and get ad sales and you get a percentage of what you close. But then they would close like dumb shit. They would close like, for example, they're like, who cares if it's a porn company, if it's a weed company, if it's a right. shitty service, like it doesn't matter. And then we were like, well, actually, that's a good point. We need like inverse incentives. Like, uh, you know, do the readers like this? Is the click-through rate high? Do they renew? And I couldn't figure out how to do that successfully. I couldn't figure out because both all the <laughs> I thought I thought for sure the story was ending with so then I created a better system and it worked beautifully. You're like, I 
I couldn't figure that shit out. That's too complicated. <laughs> Just like, you know, like, I thought so, I would have bet anything that you were about to say. So then we did this and pat on the back. I did a great job because I'm so used to people doing that. Like, you know, in tech, nobody says, you know, we kind of hit this problem and we didn't solve it. <laughs> just didn't solve it you know nobody ever tells a story like that i love that you just told a story like that that's amazing <laughs> well I, I i so with my new business i am trying to think i'm like how do i solve this you know like can i pay like 50 percent of the but there's like but i started researching different ways to solve this and uh i don't know have you ha i'll tell you a few other examples but have you had with like the milk road or with anything that you've done have you had where you're like if i just change the incentives this other thing changed so it's like the product isn't the revolutionary or interesting thing it's like how you operate that's what's interesting yeah um i don't think i have a great story personally off the top of my head uh like we just did one where we needed to fill all the ads for like october or something like that or like what, whatever some future month and we were a little light and it was like oh how do we get this up and um and Ben was just like, you know, if we just told our like, you know, salesperson, we'll give them an extra 10K if they can get this to if they can get us, you know, to, to this fill rate, um, I think they'll do it. And and I was like, yeah, but like, that's the same thing as their quota. Like if they just filled it, they would get that percentage. He's like, no, I think if we just say, I'll give you $10,000 on top of your quota, if you could do this. And I was like, OK, I guess that makes sense. And uh, instantly they like way overfilled it. So and I was like, OK, I don't think you can do that all the time uh, because like, you know, this got them, you know, to get off their ass and do something. But uh, but yeah, I thought that was interesting. So what's funny is you're right. That does work and you can do it all the time. So I was researching like incentives <laughs> and one of the there's a handful of ways to make it. Basically, I think Charlie Munger or some one of the like rich, smart guys said, like, you show me the incentives. Yeah. I'm going to show you future results or something like that. And yeah, show me I, your incentives and I'll show you your outcomes. And there are a few successful ways to like incentivize people. And so one of those ways I was reading this McKenzie study where they said you actually should give bonuses based on 105 percent performance, not just 90 percent performance. And research shows that if you over attain to in order to get a bonus, people tend to do that versus the other way around. Another thing is you do um, clawbacks. So you get 50 percent uh, of a bonus up front. And if you don't achieve the goal that you said you're going to get done, then I'm going to do what's called a clawback and I'm going to take that money from you. So you could do this with kids where you say, hey, look, your allowance is $100 a week or $100 a month. I'm actually going to give you 50 now and the other 50 when you do your chores. But if you don't do your chores, you're giving me that 50 back. And that loss aversion is actually uh, performs better than if I just say I'm going to give you $100 at the end of the month if you do X, Y and Z. Um, That's that's hundred percent right. Um, yeah, the I think loss aversion is what they what they call it. But basically, it feels it feels worse to lose money you have than to not gain the same amount of money. Yeah, it should be the same thing, but it's it's definitely not the same thing. And uh, I had this when we did I did a deal once where we got a million dollar signing bonus, but it was contingent that if we le if we left before a year, um, then we wouldn't get. The million dollars and uh, i would uh, personally i wouldn't get the million dollars if uh if i left before a year and um and i think if you had just told me hey do you want to stay for a year to get this million dollars i would have been like well you know that sounds good but there's other opportunities maybe i could do it this other way but once they just put the money in my account they're like that's there now go look at that okay cool if you leave early you have to pay all that back and i was like oh man i gotta pay back a million dollars and it just felt even my brain knew exactly what was going on. I was like, 
I just don't want to pay back a million dollars. That sounds like uh, that, that would be horrible. I'm just I'm definitely not doing that. I'm not losing a million. Whereas if they had just said, hey, if you if you stay a little longer, you can get this extra bit. I would have been like, ah, maybe I can go get that some other way. And um, and that's a kind of a crazy like psycho, like, you know, psychological trick. I knew what was going on and it still felt real to me. Well, and another interesting example, then we can move on. But another interesting example that I was thinking about was for, uh, you know, what's like a really fucked up industry is private prisons because you're incentivized by like how many beds you fill, you know, yep. and that's like, you know, doesn't align with what we want as a society. And I'm like, well, what it should be is you're paid a little bit of money for how many beds you fill. But then if the inmate, you know, has a recidivist, if they go back to prison inside the next four years outside of being released, you got to give me that money back. And if they stay out, I'll give you the second half of your payment. And I was right. just like, I was thinking of all these different ways that, because uh, I was thinking about my business. I'm like, how can I change my incentives around in order to get a different outcome? And that was like a really good example. Uh, but it seems the problem with incentives is that, A, it's like to change them, you have to be kind of bold and like kind of be the first to like really try something new. And B, oftentimes, it's not always straightforward. Like, did you achieve this or like tracking the results is actually like a huge task in itself, which is what we had at the hustle. I'm like, I could do this, but like, I got to build all this stuff to like track all this. But anyway, I, I yeah, because I, it's uh, they call it second order effects. Basically, usually the first thing you're trying to incentivize does happen. It's the second thing that goes wrong. Basically, it's uh, yeah, you got your ads filled, but they filled it with certain types of content, which led to readers being upset, which led to churn or whatever. Like you have to predict what would be the, uh, the second order effect that comes from some of this stuff. There's a, there's like a Farnham street blog that, that I read about this one. The Cobra thing. Yeah. Like the Cobra thing. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, Sort of like incentives gone wrong. I don't even remember the story at this point. Basically it was like in India right now, like there's, you know, the stereotype of like a guy playing like a horn or I don't know what it's called. And like the Cobra coming up and like dancing and it was like, well, why are there so many cobras in India? And apparently, I don't remember what year it was, but there there was a little bit of a cobra problem. And they go, hey, everyone, we're going to give you $50 for every dead cobra you bring it bring to us, thinking, great, we're going to have no more cobras. But in reality, uh, the schemers were like, oh, let's breed cobras and yeah. kill them and bring them <laughs> to you. So like, oh, nice. It's free money. This is awesome. And that there was now an overpopulation problem of cobras. I, I actually exactly. have no idea if that's a true story, but that's uh, that's like one of the urban legends. Yeah, that's one of those Malcolm Gladwell stories that just like becomes like known by everybody, whether it's real or not. Um, Have you heard the one about right. uh, him talking about David and Goliath? Yeah, that one's great. Basically, the I'll summarize it in 10 seconds, which is basically like everyone talks about David Goliath. It's this underdog versus the big shot. And they're like, oh, no, it turns out Goliath was like eight feet tall because he had a pituitary gland problem, which means that he was like <laughs> had low IQ, meaning he like was like, you know, like an idiot. <laughs> And he was like big, which means if you have that pituitary gland issue or that issue, you can't see. And at the time, the Davids of the world were like shepherds and they had these slings, which is basically like they had a rifle. So basically uh, this like lead BB that this guy had is already deadly. And he hit like a big guy who was stupid and blind. So it's really not that like impressive. <laughs> yeah. David's a bully. Yeah. <laughs> 
Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. It is a podcast that we want you to check out. It's called D2C Pod. It's hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas. It is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. And this is a podcast about all things direct-to-consumer, D2C. It's e-commerce stores. It's how you optimize your brand. And they're talking with founders, marketers, and the platform creators about all kinds of things that you need to know for D2C. You know, website conversion, paid ads, Facebook ads, consumer trends, email marketing. If you want to know the stories behind your favorite brands, this podcast is for you. They did an episode recently about scaling creator growth and influencer incentives. That I thought it's pretty cool. So check it out. Listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Um, all right. So let me give you let me give you an idea. Okay. So I need a name for this. Don't have a name. Uh, it's a working title here. But I think that isn't it crazy that basically uh, so we're we both invest in startups now. And um and I had this real one of one of the startups that I invested in is just doing absolutely amazing. And I'm like, wow, that thing is going to make like our little investment. We put 75 K in. I was like, I think it's currently probably at like four or five million dollars value that 75 K check. And we're not like like th- it can still run like that thing can still double twice. And you you're know? not doing like, anything. That, that's not, I'm not doing anything. And <laughs> I was like, and also so that's kind of a just amazing. And I'm like, oh, I'm excited. Like the fund is going to have like. Uh, like the first really, really big winner. Cause we're only two we're, we're two years in. And so it's hard to know what's your, what are going to be your big winners. But I think that one's going to be one of the really big winners. Now it's, it's, it's looking like very, very promising. But the second part is I would have never guessed that that would be the one. Um, what can you say like what went, it is? Um, no, I don't want to say which one it is yet. Um, Cause I don't know if they want me to say or whatever, but basically I looked back at literally that, that the batch of, that quarter I did 10 deals. And of those 10, I would have said like, Oh, this is probably like, you know, somewhere in the middle. Uh, I would not have guessed. It's like the one that's the big winner. And I thought, wow, that's crazy. And I was like, you know, it's pretty unfair that employees at tech companies don't have this sort of portfolio approach. And it got me thinking, we talked about, or the founders, uh, Sarah's list or the founders. We talked about Sarah's list and how, you know, the, if you could pick one of these companies that's going to four or five X over your four year period there, um, you know, you can become a, a you know, a self-made millionaire without taking huge entrepreneurial risks, but you got to pick right. And so that got me thinking like, why do you have to pick right? And so I got two startup related uh, community ideas for you. The first is, by the way, the I'm way that you're it- setting this up, it's like, you know, doesn't it suck that when you eat 4,000 <laughs> calories a day, you get fat. Why does it have to be that way? It doesn't. <laughs> like, what, what if ice cream had just had a bad rap? Yeah. And what if I told you that yeah. if you exhale while eating, it has no effect at all? Yeah, it's like, duh. Yeah, okay. In. The, um, all right. So my idea is basically this. You take a job at a tech company. You get your portfolio of stock options. Or sorry, you get your stock options. You can then click a button and you can, what, you can pool it. And you could pool it with other companies that are like like equally risk weighted. So we basically create like a um, like a cr- like a credit rating agency where we kind of rate stock options, and we're like, all right, cool. Like you're getting it at this price at this valuation. Good, we know that. That's that's set. And secondly, like there's a community like uh, desirability to these options. Like maybe everybody in the community really wants Stripe options because they're like, wow, Stripe is great. But I'm not working at Stripe right now. I'm working at this smaller startup that I think has high upside. But like I consider Stripe options to be triple A stock options. And so you kind of get a valuation and then a trust of that valuation. But you basically put your you put your stock in and you end up with 
let's call it 40% your stock and 60% becomes a blend of other stocks that you get to either pick or index into out of the startup community. And so as a, as an engineer or as a designer or whoever you are, you're getting to be a part of, you get de-risked a little bit out of just your one thing. Cause maybe you got a crazy CEO, you got Adam Newman, you thought we work was a good idea. And now three years later, your stock options are worthless. They're underwater. And like, you know that, okay, cool. That's just how the game works. But does it have to be that way is my question. And so, um, Sam, I have two questions for you. How good of an idea on this on a scale of one to incredible. And secondly, we need a name for this idea. We already know I'm not funny on the spot. So the name thing, I'm I'm gonna that's just I'm already gonna swing it. Share. Yeah. <laughs> it's already a swing and a miss. I mean, I call my company the hustle. Like I'm not even good at naming not on the spot. Uh so, <laughs> so I mean this podcast is called My First Million. Like we're not we're not exactly good at this. Uh I told Sarah I wanna name my our kid Buck. And uh, she she wasn't feeling it. <laughs> Dude, that's so funny. I had told my wife, I had been saying this since college, and I wanted to name my kid Jumper. <laughs> and, like, and then even I was like, that's a horrible name. But at some point I was committed because I had told like 12 people that I was doing this. And those were like my 12 friends. And it made no sense, but I like had to stick with it. So my wife was like, what are you, what are you saying? This is not even close to what's going to happen. Yeah. I've suggested Biff and Buff and uh, <laughs> she's not into it. I think these are like, you know, in Batman comics where they like punch and it's like, pow, it's like Biff, <laughs> Buck. It's like the sound effect of, of a cartoon punch. I have a, a feeling that first name Chuck, middle name Steak is not going to pass either, but, but TBD. <laughs> <laughs> so i'm not good at naming anything but yeah i mean if you could pull this off dude one thing that i learned when i was running my company was i thought like oh it's a privately held business i can do whatever i want with the shares like i could just you get a share you get a share i can give this to you <laughs> i didn't realize that it's like it's not i guess it's i don't know if it would technically be considered regulated but there's like rules right like you can't for example if i give if i sell you a share for a dollar i can't then six months later and i'm like summarizing this which means i'm probably a little bit off i can't then go and give like another employee that same share for 50 cents you know that's i i guess i don't know if that'd be considered illegal or just against like certain rules that where you can get in trouble but it's like you can't do whatever you want so yeah if you could but if you could figure out how to like operationally pull this off i think it's badass well, there are like secondary markets where you actually sell them, but I think this would have to be some, you'd have to create some, some, you know, financial contract, some, some, some derivative product that basically says I pledge or assign my shares to this portfolio basically. And then in, in exchange, I receive shares of the portfolio and there has to be some sort of like consequence for trying to like, you know, renege or whatever. Let's say your startup hits it huge. You're like, Oh, uh, don't want to do that. So I don't know the, you know, I'm going to wave my hands in the air right now that what I'm doing right now is legal, financial magic. Like, all right, it's done. That's done now. And now we just need to like, you know, start the company and uh, have it take off. Yeah. I mean, it's, we, we, I don't By know. The way, that's how I actually run my businesses. I'll go talk to the lawyer or the accountant. I'll be like, I don't know. We don't have the, uh, we, don't, we don't know what the contract says. Like, you know, you got it. <laughs> you got this. I'm just giving them good vibes. And I'm like, Hey, I already agreed to this deal you got to figure out how that works. <laughs> like, they're like, what? <laughs> Why didn't you just 
talk to me first. <laughs> There's like this leadership principle that you're supposed to like give people autonomy and like let them figure out and empower them. And I always just see I'm like, <laughs> That's what I'm like doing. you're empowered, dude. <laughs> I'm empowering you to figure this out. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. The autonomy I've given you. Your ass just got empowered, my friend. <laughs> congratulations yeah you're welcome thank me later studies show this makes you happier yeah. studies show <laughs> they're like so upset <laughs> yeah I mean if you could figure that out I think I'm down I just empowered your ass <laughs> yeah, I just empowered your ass yeah. classic yeah, you leadership like that? move on my part <laughs> you like that you <laughs> Stuck on that Harvard. So sorry. <laughs> Spe- speaking of like investing, I was uh, reading about the Figma thing. So Figma is like the design thing that just sold for twenty billion. So have you heard of O'Reilly Media? Yeah, they um, they publish like books in the conference, right? Like, yeah. B- basically, what's the guy's name who started? It? I had dinner with him one time. What's his first name? Tim uh, O'Reilly. Tim O'Reilly. Like so he's like they call him like he had this title like the Oracle of Silicon Valley because he's been in the game since like the 70s and 80s and uh, originally started writing books on programming. And his mission statement for his company was actually really cool. It was like uh, work on interesting stuff with interesting people. And he's like, we'll try books for a little while. And then he's like, oh, we'll just let's just stick with books. That's fine. But like he didn't actually necessarily care about books. He just wanted to like fund his ability to work on cool stuff. So he, anyway, they're famous for writing these books. Now they make like two or three hundred million dollars a year. Uh, with a combination of books, conferences, and uh, like you can pay like 50 bucks a month and like get access to like a bunch of their like technical content. So it's content for engineers and shit like that. Anyway, they started a little fun using the profits of their business and the profits of their business were was big, but their fund wasn't necessarily big compared to like a, a full-time, you know, proper fund fund. And I was looking at some of the stuff that they did and they were in Figma's seed round. And I was doing some math, and this doesn't account for dilution and if they sold early. So these numbers actually could potentially be off by a, by a lot. But assuming that isn't the case, uh, if they if I don't know what Figma's, Figma's seed round was, but I think they raised $3 million. So if you assume that it was around a $15 million cap, uh, it sold for $20 billion. That means it went up by around 1,300 times. So a $250,000 check is something like $300 million. And it's crazy that this is one of those examples where the main thing didn't even make the main money. You know what I mean? Like the, or sorry, the (laughs) main, the, the not main thing made more than the main thing. Our software is the worst. Have you heard of HubSpot? See, most CRMs are a cobbled together mess, but HubSpot is easy to adopt and actually looks gorgeous. I think I love our new CRM. Our software is the best. HubSpot, grow better. Dude, there, I mean, there's so many examples of that. Uh, that actually leads me to another topic I had. But like the remember that when we did Camp MFM, we stayed in a house and I don't know if you saw it, but did you see on the stairway up to the guest bedroom, those plaques on the wall? Did you w- walk to that staircase, like the back staircase by any chance? Yeah, I thought they were just like kids trophies, like basketball trophies. I didn't <laughs> no, even look at them. No. <laughs> no, they were adult trophies. <laughs> basically what those were uh so the guy whose house we were staying in he's a venture capitalist oh and he's I, a venture capitalist who lives in north carolina and that on that stairway up i was walking up there and i was like wait beyond meat and it's basically what he was framing was a share certificate it's like um this guy uh you know whatever his name was owns you know forty five thousand shares priced at 
point oh one dollar, you know, dollar, like basically one cent a share. And then it's like Beyond Meat going public at eleven dollars a share. And I was like, wait, I was just like, literally took out the calculator app. And you know, how it doesn't go up to a billion or whatever. I was like, oh unless you God, turn like, it, this is you got to turn the this, phone. Oh, really? If you turn the phone, wow. it gets, yeah, that's a fun little fact. Wow. Game changer. I've been uh, just like saying, you know, I'm like, what giving does up E10 times. mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly that's my that's my goal not to be a billionaire to get an e in my network yeah (laughs) the the, um the the but the guy basically had like 20 of these on his wall and they were just like yep issued shares at 22 cents a share now going public at 22 dollars a share i'm like wow that's like yeah these are crazy run-ups and it's like okay you own 10,000 shares 20,000 shares one five thousand shares 50,000 shares and you just do the math you're like this is a staggering amount of money that's being generated by this it is really mind-boggling when you get these investments right, and it is also really funny how some of the r- really successful people made their wealth not out of the main thing that they did, but in a way out of the main thing that they did. Tim Ferriss is another example. Somebody was asking me the other day. They go, "How much do you think Tim Ferriss makes a year?" And I said, "I, you know, I don't know. I don't probably, think he maximizes like no what he can do. Like he doesn't sell out, you know, but, fully. But like, probably he just, five like, to ten million bucks." Yeah, I said I, that's exactly. I said five to five to eight million dollars a year, probably of just like cash flow uh, at this point from you know podcasts, sponsorships, newsletter, whatever, but uh, book royalty, something like that. I said maybe five million dollars a year. I said they're like, oh, okay, that's that's really good, but uh, you know, I guess that's not that big. And I go, yeah, but like he also because he was Tim Ferriss, got to invest in Shopify and Uber, and like. Probably made hundreds of millions of dollars off of his Uber investment. Yeah, I, over hundred million dollars, my guess. I would bet that his net worth is north of one fifty, maybe north of two hundred liquid. Yeah, which is, I mean, insane. And obviously, insane. like what that means is that ninety plus percent of it probably has come from not his. Well, if he described himself, he might say, "I'm an author. I'm a self experimenter. I'm a podcaster." But then all his money came from like, you know, four angel investments or whatever. And um, and I think that's really, really uh, that's like really, really impressive, but also more common than you'd think. Do you know other people who had this? Otherwise, I have a example that I want to go into anyway. Yeah, uh, just like a few famous people, just like you see like uh, like Nas, the rapper, like on all these cap tables. Like, yeah, you, you know, the guy who started Figma in one of the articles, it said that he had made 10 million dollars because he owned the most expensive crypto one of those like big ones uh and he bought it for nothing and he sold it and he had 10 million before he even sold figma but uh what are the other ones uh well i wanted to do i was thinking about okay who do i do as billy of the week and so my billy of the week that i came up with was roger federer the tennis player million dollars isn't cool you know what's cool a billion dollars so the U.S. Open was on, got me thinking about tennis, and um, and I saw that Roger Federer was one of he's he's part of the uh, the Billy Athlete Club. So there's Roger like, Federer think, is five athletes who have made a billion dollars: Tiger Woods, Floyd Mayweather, LeBron James, Ronaldo, and I think Michael Jordan, maybe Messi. So that might be six. I think it's five. Um, and now Federer is in that club. Did so you give him like Federer, a three hundred million dollar bump though, because he married Brooklyn Decker? No, I, that's not even included. That's that's just bonus points. Uh, so how does this work? So he he has the same thing where, okay, he's had a great career, right? Considered, I think the goat 
in terms of tennis tennis players. So he's, he's the greatest tennis player of all time, but less than basically 90% of his money came not from winning tennis tournaments. So he he's made 130-ish million dollars from official prize money from tournaments. Um, and he's got 20 Grand Slam wins, but most of the money he makes is off the court. So just for example, like- Is he retired? Yeah, so Roger Federer, who just announced literally yesterday that he's retiring, you know, in his last year, he made like, I don't know, 300,000 of prize money, but 90 million from sponsorships off uh, off the court, what? Uh, off the court, which is kind of insane. But his story is kind of cool. Like, and when I was studying these different athletes, I'm actually going to do a whole episode that's just a deep dive on each of these athletes, the moves that they made that made this happen. So one of Federer's big moves was that early on, he was not getting paid jack shit. Even when he was the best player, um, they, you know, they would pay like Andy Roddick more because they're like, oh, Andy Roddick, he's American. America's a bigger market. Federer Swiss, uh, the Swiss market, you know, that's the tiny population. He's kind of this like clean cut sort of boring guy. He doesn't have this big personality. Um, and even though he's really good, he's not as marketable. He's not as sellable. And this is what they used to tell him. So he was getting like very small, like Nike was paying Andy Roddick more than they were paying Roger Federer, even though By the way, Federer the, was not ranked number one. That's the guy who married Brooklyn Decker. Oh yeah. yeah. Andy Roddick. That's right. Damn. Missed that um, one. So, uh, so anyway, so Federer goes and he's like, he's making, so he's making like very little money from Nike. Then he, you know, he carries on and he goes and he gets to a $10 million uh, a year deal with Nike. And it's sort of like, well, you made it, you know, you should be happy. You got this $10 million a year deal. You know, you're set, your, your family's set, whatever. But he made two decisions, which uh, really one decision led to two things that made him an extra $600 million. And here's what those two were. So the first is his contract with Nike is coming up. And the expectation is that he's going to uh, just renew with Nike. And he goes to Nike, he says, hey. This is now or then? This is back then. He's like, I'm one of the, uh, you know, I'm one of the best uh, tennis players in the world. Like, you know, what can you do for me? And they're like, Raj, we, we, we put so much marketing behind you. Uh, you know, the reality is you can't compare yourself to basketball players or to uh, or to um, soccer players. Like, you know, tennis is just a different thing. Here's the best we could do. And they gave him a deal. And the deal was basically like every year that you're playing, you get X amount of money. And he's and, you know, something similar to what he was making right then. But. He starts, he decides, you know what? I'm going to pause here. I'm not just going to take this deal. I'm going to go shop around a little bit more and see what I can do. And then Uniqlo comes at him with this crazy offer. And so Uniqlo, who's not even in the like sports apparel game, really, but they kind of had this like tennis vibe. They're trying to come, they're trying to come to the West. And, um, and so Uniqlo comes at him and they offer him a 10 year deal worth $300 million that, that pays him even when he retires. So this is 2018. He's retired now. Um, I think he's retired now. Let's check that. But he, he is retired now, right, guys? Um, but basically, he uh, he signs his deal knowing that he will retire during this deal and he's going to get paid $30 million a year uh, doing this. He goes back to Nike. He tells Nike, hey, guys, I got this offer. Can you also give me an offer like this? It doesn't even have to be as much. And they're like, uh, no, we'll, we'll throw in this like, you know, here's an extra free T-shirt. But, you know, yeah. no, no, you're not getting a new deal. Give you a parking So spot. he's like, all right. He leaves, but there's one key thing that he kind of knew here, which was that Uniqlo doesn't make shoes. And so he signs the Uniqlo deal. He starts wearing Uniqlo, but he's still wearing Nike shoes. And they ask him at the press conference, they're like, Roger, uh, I noticed you're still wearing your Nikes. Like, are you allowed to do He's like, oh, yeah, I don't have a deal with them. Um, you know, I, I'm shopping around. Let's see what's out there for me. Uh, you know, it's exciting. I want to see, see what's out there. And so for three years, he keeps wearing Nikes 
essentially for free because he's just playing in them. He doesn't have a shoe deal. And then finally, he gets he does a shoe deal with a brand called On Running, which I'm guessing you know about yeah. On, the, the running brand. They're, they're, uh, also they're another Swiss, Swiss company. Yeah, they're, they, yep, they, they're take, kind of taking the world by storm. And, you know, what's funny is they were one of our advertisers when we first started and they started spending a little bit of money and their spend kept going up each year. And I was like, you guys are killing it, aren't you? And they are. I think they make like over a billion in revenue now or maybe they even sold. Did they sell? No, they went public. So, so they went public at its peak. It was like eleven billion dollar valuation. Now, with uh, with the market correction, it's back closer to six billion. Uh, but at the, you know at its peak, so Roger owned three percent of the brand in exchange for he did an equity deal. So he said, "All right, I get it. You guys don't have the same cash that these guys can offer. How about a piece of the company?" And so he owns three percent of the company. At its peak, his stake is worth three hundred million dollars now. So that's sort of like bet on yourself. And then do an equity deal. Don't don't trade dollars for time. You know, trade your brand for shares. Trade it for equity, and that becomes worth three hundred million dollars. And then he says, "All right, what else can I do?" So he then takes matters into his own hands. He cuts ties with his current representation company. Starts his own player management firm to represent him and other players. Then he starts creating his own tournament. So he's got his own like you know cup that's basically like you know the equivalent of the Ryder Cup in golf, where it's like Europe versus America. Uh, so he wants to do the same thing. And so now he's got his own competition thing. And so he's built this whole empire, made over a billion dollars total, most of it, 90% of it off the court. And I think this is kind of amazing. And if you look at it, um, there's a couple like like interesting things here. So he um, he goes up market. So he goes basically like, how do I go premium? So his sponsors are Mercedes-Benz, Rolex, Lint Chocolate. He didn't do what Jordan did, which was Coca-Cola and McDonald's, right? Because he's like, all right, where's my niche? Where's my market? How do I get paid? Let me go to these, like, you know, go to Rolex basically. Um, the second thing that he did was he, um, he, uh, he basically not only did he bet on himself, not only did he take matters into his own hands, he played a very patient game. And so I think most people would have been the, during those three years where they don't have a shoe deal, they just be counting the dollars that they're missing out on. I, I make 5 million or $10 million a year. If I just sign this contract, and this is a common trait. There's this great LeBron James story where LeBron is 18 years old. He graduates from high school that same day, you know, the day, the first day he's legally allowed to um, Nike shows up uh, at Nike or Reebok. I think Reebok shows up at his uh, um, at his school or whatever. They take him to a meeting. He's like, and I remember, dude, this is like the longest table I've ever sat at, like the longest boardroom table. He's sitting at one end. I'm sitting at the other end. And he's like, he slides a check over to me. And I look at it, it's more money than I've ever seen in my life. And LeBron comes from like single mom. Right. She had him at 16, you know, couldn't pay electricity bills type of thing. Like came from like, he was dirt poor. And they basically offered him ten, a $10 million a year contract as an 18 year old kid. He hasn't played a single game in the NBA yet. And he looks at it and they're like, you signed this now and you can become our signature athlete. We will put this money behind you. It's the biggest deal we've ever offered to a kid out of high school. You know, congratulations, son. And he doesn't have, a, he doesn't have an agent. He doesn't have anything at this point. And he basically just says, you know, appreciate the offer, man. Like, I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, let me get back to you. They're like, get back to you. This is $10 million a year. What are you thinking? And he's like, and he's like, he tells a story later. He's like, in my head, I'm thinking, man, this is more money than I've ever seen. But if Reebok's offering me this much, I wonder what Nike will offer Dude, me. I wonder crazy. what these other, like, he's like, I must be worth something to these guys. Like, I don't have to take this deal yet. And just by being patient, he ended up with a much larger deal uh, out of that, just for not like immediately grabbing. So the check. you know what trait that's called? It's called um, 
there's this awesome book by this woman named Angela Duckworth called Grit. Have you ever heard of that book, Grit? I've seen like Silicon Valley people talk about it. Yeah. Well, it's like centered around this story. It's like a study where they give a whole bunch of kids. uh, They sit them down at a table and they go, hey, look, you can have one marshmallow now or in a couple hours, I'll give you two. But uh, I'm going to set this here. I'm going to go out of the room for a little while and handle some stuff. When I come back, I'll see if you decided to eat it or leave it there. And uh, that will kind of tell me what decision you made. Sound good? And they leave and, you know, they just see who does what. And they measure these kids for like 30 and 50 years, like for years and years. And what they found is there's a correlation between traditional financial success, you know, like our traditional word of success. There was a correlation between how successful they were and the children that chose to not eat that one in exchange for getting two in the future. And the ones who put it off, you know, and ate two, they were more successful. And what you've explained to me is like the perfect, like real world, but rare example of uh, grit where it's like, no, I'm willing to like not do this thing now in exchange for a better alternative in, potentially in the future. And that, that's, like delayed that's the, gratification. Yes, delayed gratification. And that's like the best way to describe that. I'm a marshmallow eater, dude. Like uh, I, I would have been that first, you know, <laughs> I yeah. would have had it in my mouth while they're explaining the instructions. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> There's well, another one coming? <laughs> well, I always got like frustrated when I talked about like, you know, I told you this when they talked about Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos talking about patience and having fun. I'm like, dog, you're way too old. Go have fun now. Yeah. Like there is no there is no long there is no long term, man. Your long term. Look is at like, Jeff Bezos now. He's like, you know, he's rushing, you know, tr- you know, sig app over there. He's turning into a <laughs> frat boy. He's like he's like he, he wants to be single, do roids, you know, drink beers on a boat. And it's like, uh, all right, that's cool. But like. Not as cool when you're, how old is Jeff Bezos? Not as cool when you're 57 as it was when you were. I don't know, man. It looks like it works. It looks like it (laughs) it looks like it's working for him. Uh, Let me tell you about this thing I read right before we started. So basically today, I think today, they're going to announce the Fed, what their uh, rate raise is going to be. Yeah, we're going to we're going to learn how much money we've lost today. Yes. And uh, I don't know anything about that type of stuff, so I'm not going to pretend I do. But I I read this interesting article and it was about JP Morgan. You know, JP Morgan's is like, you know, amazing bank that's supposed to know what they're talking about. And I was reading about what their predictions were. And they had this like day of scenario where they're like, here's like the three options uh, or here's the three possible outcomes. And, you know, they raise the rate by this much, this much and this much. And here's our prediction on what's going to happen. And they weren't like being funny. They weren't obviously they weren't being funny. They weren't trying to be like silly or anything. But I'm going to tell you the the, the range of the three options. So um <laughs> Option one was, well, I'll just say like, so what's going to happen is if they raise it by 0.75, we are potentially going to have a 5% drop. Uh, Sorry, if it's a full full percentage point raise, we're going to have a 5% drop in the market. Or if it's a 0.75% raise, we're going to have one of the best days on record for the S&P 500. (laughs) So that's basically this like the the most like one of the most prestigious banks on earth with thousands of people studying this. They say it's either going to be the best day ever or a 5% <laughs> drop, which is not quite the worst day ever, but it's a really bad day. And it just goes to prove that even the quote experts, they don't know shit. We're all just floating on this rock trying to figure it out. But I saw this and I was like, wait, are you kidding me? Is this a serious, (laughs) is this a serious prediction? 
it's going to be one of the best days ever or one of the worst days ever or something in between. That's basically what the prediction it, is. It reminds me of those people where you're like, all right, so, you know, what do you think of the chances that it happens? They're like, what? it's a 50-50, man. It, it, it's either going to happen or it's not going to happen. It's like, <laughs> no, it's like just because there's only two options doesn't make it a 50-50. Like, yeah, it's, it's either going to be or it's not going to be. It's not 50-50. And then, like, tomorrow, the same analyst is going to be like, well, you know, I saw that going one of two ways, but I did not expect it going that other way. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is, it's like they released like an 82-page report and it just like, I I don't know, man. At the end, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just trails off. <laughs> yeah, well, who the say, hell knows? Though, it should really. say like M M N M. Not much, you. That's just what the whole report should be, because that's basically what they just said. Like, what's your opinion? Not much, you. Yeah, it, it, I thought that was ridiculous. That's that's J- so. I was reading about all these hedge funds, and I'm like, oh, these guys are smart. But turns out, like when I was reading about these hedge funds, these guys are smart, but they're like kind of lucky like they like just make a bunch yeah, of guesses they're hedged funds yeah <laughs> <laughs> did this guy um this is right, a so hedged this, opinion by the way this is the most yeah, hedged exactly. opinion i've ever seen in my life <laughs> the um it's like one time i was playing roulette and i was uh so down on my luck at the casino by the time i get to the roulette table that means i have like i got bored of poker then i lost money in five minutes playing blackjack and then I had like an absolute roller coaster at the craps table. And now roulette is my like come down. My, my gambling addicts out there will know what I'm talking about. And then at some point I'm like just betting wrong every time. Like what are the odds of me being wrong on red or black 12 times in a row? And then I'm just betting both red and black just to feel a little bit of a win. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I'm just hoping a green doesn't show up. Uh, but basically like there's a, a tweet that I saw that goes, yeah, I never realized my whole net worth was dependent on an interest rate. Like, yeah, and it's so true. It's like, dude, until this year, did you know what the FOMC committee no. was? Did you did you know that like no. your entire net worth was dependent on 0.75 or one percent interest rate hikes? Like, who the, where the fuck did this come from, and why did it turn out that they could no, just, I the remember, interest rate could just ragdoll my my net worth? I remember uh, people talking about the Fed, and I was like, I don't know what the Fed is. It's like. It's like what people I thought say. Like, talking about the FBI, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the Fed. A lot of like Breaking yeah. Bad and Narcos. Yeah. I, I had no idea. Like you know, how, like people say, like, well, you know, scientists say, or you know, they say this. I, that's who I thought the Feds was. It was just they. You know, there's he, him, her. Now there's they. You know, I just thought it was it's the pro, the official pronoun. My they. pronouns are, are they and Fed. <laughs> yeah, dude, I saw a guy on Twitter, and he put for his pronouns, he put we dash damn dash boys dude I, that's it's the best one it's the best one it's that guy jack um jack, jack r reigns read them boys yeah. that that was his it's, uh it's pronouns. too fucking good <laughs> yeah that one will always make me laugh um all right i have something interesting uh so in i found this video on on youtube if you google on youtube like figma seed pitch so I watched that this morning, dude. Awesome. Let's talk about it. Because basically the story is, I believe it was in this video was filmed, I think, in 2013. So the video, the video was posted in 2020. But the way looking at it, he looks pretty young. Maybe not 2013 young, but he looks young. But regardless, he's going through his pitch. And basically, so Figma uh, recap sold this week on Monday or Friday or something like that for $20 billion. One of the biggest exits ever for a venture back startup. Uh, and the guy who ran it started the business when he was 19. And there's this video on YouTube of him pitching this guy named Daniel Gross, who was actually on our pod early on, who had a fund. 
And I had a few takeaways from this pitch. And so it's like a 20 or 18 minute or 10 minute video of him pitching. My five takeaways were a, he's a kid. Even if it, even the video is like new, he looks like, he looks like he's 18, but, and he looks so young and he talks kind of young, but he's really wise. Like you could, you, you hear him speaking and you're like, it's very impressive hearing him talk. The second is that the pitch was basically videos of the product. It was a prototype, like a demo of the prototype, not as much of a deck. And oftentimes throughout the pitch, it was pretty fun. And he like used the product to Photoshop the guy he was pitching, Daniel, he photoshopped his face and made it. He made him look like another person. And Daniel, the guy being pitched, was like, "Oh my god, this is hilarious! This is awesome!" And Dylan, the guy pitching, was just like having fun and showing him the product. And that was so much better than just showing a deck. And the last two things were uh, tech skills. So the guy is like clearly technical, and we often talk about how like it does. You don't need this stuff, and technically, you don't need it. But goddamn, it helps. This guy, he's clearly <laughs> like they built something that like was actually working. And that's such an advantage. I do think you need to learn that. And the last thing is that it's an MVP. It does not look good at all. It, it's pretty ugly and it's and, and it's mildly effective, but it's effective enough that you can see the future. Yeah, exactly. I watched this thing. Um, so you can find it if you go to YouTube. It says it's uh, his name, Dylan Field. Pitches seed stage Figma to Daniel Gross. That's the name of the, the YouTube video. It's got uh what thirty thousand views now. Yeah. I think. But like, I bet you probably so, all of it's in the last two days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so he's pitching, and my observations are very much like yours. First of all, it doesn't doesn't feel like a pitch because uh, most pitches are like, "Hey, here's our company. Um, we're going after this really big market. Did you know we have a TAM of." you know, $3 trillion a year are spent on healthcare. And you're like, oh, wow, okay, um, $3 trillion. That's cool. So what are you doing? And they're like, you know, uh, <laughs> you know we like- We sell weed. Yeah, like we help, your, we help you do squats with using your phone camera, like with better form. And it's like, uh, I don't think that's the $3 trillion of healthcare spend, <laughs> but okay, yeah, like <laughs> I'm not sure what the-, what the And they always have was. like a, st- a stupid quadrant thing with them in the top right. Right. Everybody else, you know, the the, the y-axis is if you're, you know, s- stupid or smart. And then this one is if you're hardworking or or lazy. It's like, like I don't know. Everybody else is-, is lazy and dumb and we're hardworking and smart. It's like and this handsome, $20 too. billion dollar company. Are you sure you're better than them? <laughs> I think. They're, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. They're like, you know, poor product. It's like, uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're a poor product. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me mad. Yeah, <laughs> put themselves in the bottom left and be like but one day this yeah. we could <laughs> we can yeah, move yeah, like, we're gonna we move ourselves on the ground six weeks ago when we met and then now we've moved up and like just imagine the trajectory yeah. and like that's actually the reality that, that's yeah. actually what's happening we've already moved an inch on this screen imagine if you give us five years it's not to scale but <laughs> So, so he's doing this pitch. It's basically literally the first slide. It's a picture of him on a boat. It's like, <laughs> here's me I'm on a boat. And I used to work at Flipboard. He goes, I worked at Flipboard twice. <laughs> and then he goes, uh, yeah, this is my co-founder. He was my friend at school. We dropped out. Okay. He goes, then he shows this video of this talk. He goes, I was really inspired by this talk by Brett Victor inventing on principle. By the way, this same talk, I think is the one that the Webflow guy said was like, his inspiration for building Webflow was the same grainy ass video 
of this guy explaining, you know, like how to build like a like a real product. Well, like I think that I think product. the takeaway from the talk is, or, or, or he says something in the talk about how uh, it's morally right to help people to create, or something like that. Where he's like, your goal as a business builder is just help people create, or something like yeah. that. And so the Webflow guy, like the the demo he's doing in this is like the difference between uh, like imagine you have to you have to choose a bunch of options from a menu or write a bunch of code and then push run and see how it happens versus just you see the thing and you could just edit it live like a drag and drop. Like it's a, what you see is what you get editor and how much more creative you can be when you're doing it. The, what you see is what you get version because you're just shuffling things around in real time. And I think everybody's kind of experienced this in general. Um, so anyways, he, he gives us talk and then he gives a bunch of demos and all the demos are like, kind of uh it's like oh look i you know i made this like airplane look at blends of the background and then like oh, i did this thing like i've I merged these two people's faces together and it's like you don't look at this and you don't think ah 20 billion dollar company someday like it's not like you'd have to have a lot of foresight really what you see when you see this is like the only two indicators that this would be successful is this guy seems really smart and really like he's a creative builder so like i'd bet on him and to be successful in life for sure and then the second thing was and this is, I think, the underrated part of what people talk about for Figma, which is that there was a technology change. There was an inflection in technology, which was WebGL had come out. And I remember when WebGL first came out, I don't even there know were what a that bunch is. of these demos. I mean, I, I'm not technical enough to explain it, but basically what it made, what it did was it let you do cool graphic stuff in the browser Got it. that okay. you weren't going to be able to do unless you otherwise normally, like normally a browser was weak. And if you wanted to like play a game with cool graphics, you needed to like download the game. You need to have the application of the game to run on your computer's hardware because doing it in the browser was going to be too laggy, too slow, too whatever. And WebGL was this like web framework that let people build things that were like, they were like cool graphic-y stuff, 3D stuff, like, you know, real-time stuff in the browser. So that's why when Figma, you would see people, if I'm working on the document with you, I'd see your mouse moving around in real time. And that was like a magic trick. You had never seen that before. And at the time, I remember with, like we were building stuff and when WebGL came out, all, all of our developers were really intrigued by it. And there was like cool stuff you could do in WebGL that you weren't other, like wasn't possible before. And then the, the question was now what's the application. And then he, where he landed was like, I think we can recreate the whole creative Adobe creative suite in the browser. And here's how we're going to do it. And like that actually made a lot of sense. He didn't actually pitch it that well. He like mentioned those things during the thing, but like, you'd have to like ignore 80% of what he said and just be like, Oh, that's just fun experimentation. This guy's smart. WebGL is a game-changing technology. And this idea of recreating the Adobe suite in a browser, making it free for everybody, that's a great idea. And so, like, you had to sort of see the the, the great pitch through the forest here. Dude, so the, remember how I told you about this guy named Brett Adcock, who's, like, this billionaire guy who created uh, a, a bunch of different companies, including basically a flying car business. Remember that guy? Yeah. So he yeah. tweeted out the other day, uh, like, here's what I've learned about entrepreneurship. And one of the five things that he said was pick really, really big ideas because then you could attract more investors and it's easier to like uh, um, get employees and all that and, and all that type of thing. It's like that make no small plans thing. And that mm -hmm. thing has always made me self-conscious because like every plan I make is like pretty small. <laughs> like, like, you know, the, I, I want one marshmallow right now, not two later. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I only make small plans compared to like that plan. And it's kind of cool that like this Figma thing it doesn't seem that grand. It was, but it doesn't seem that way early on. And that like makes me feel better about my deficiencies. So thank you, Dylan. You, <laughs> you know what I mean? When people say like grand ideas and I'm like, 
Yeah, but like writing a newsletter is kind of fun. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, I don't, totally. I don't know how to make robots. <laughs> yeah, but I do dream about that uh, sometimes. I'm like, okay. Me too. And an alternate life, what am I doing right now? And I'm like, why am I not, you know, changing whatever, you know, building the, the next big thing, you know, the next Pixar or making a flying, you know, car or whatever. And it's like, I could do it. I could. I know that I could do it. And um, and I do think about doing it. Maybe I will end up doing it. But but it is for some reason for me, I sort of am like, uh, I don't know. There's a how hard do I want to work yeah. uh, question. <laughs> Right. Like, you know, if I made my quadrants, I'm putting myself in the lazy quadrant where I'm like, I don't need to do the hardest thing to impress myself. So I'm trying to figure out the things that I can do that impress myself um, that are also like not going to ruin my life and my lifestyle. Dude, well, and but what but I mean like, by that is just like, I like being home with my kids. I like that I don't have to like freak out. I don't, I don't have like a, an office of a hundred employees that are like, we're hard charging and we're about to die at all times. Like I kind of like that. I don't do that. Um, so I just need to find a way to impress myself that fits in my framework. And I think but that what about Roger really Federer? How to do that. Like who's doing his shit, you know, Roger Federer. I was going to ask you that, like who's doing his stuff. We, we had Mark Laurie in the podcast and I talked to a bunch of people who worked with him, and they're like, yeah, he's really good at raising money. And then he hires people. And then he just kind of like, they didn't, it's exaggerating to say he chills. That's not true. But like they they kind of like said like, well, he wasn't doing the hard work. He did a, a lot of the work early on, but he kind of like got all the leverage by getting the money and having the idea and starting it. And then like everyone else, he did a really good job of hiring them and letting them do their thing. So, but same with Roger Federer. He ain't the one running that running a lot of that stuff. I wonder how he partners with people. Yeah. Well, the other one that I was looking at was Floyd Mayweather. And Floyd Mayweather has kind of an amazing uh, bet on himself story like this too. Like, you probably know it, but I don't know if most people know boxers in general, uh, UFC fighters make basically nothing. And uh, with like, you know, one or two exceptions and then boxers kind of make more boxers can make, you know, 10 million, 20 million in a fight. And they can do that once or twice a year. That's great. That seemed like the top. And what Floyd Mayweather did was he was like, who the hell is making all this money? Cause I see that crowd is full of people and the pay-per-view number is huge, but like, where does the money go? And the re reality was that the money would go to the promoters and it would go to the cable companies. It would go to all these other people. The, and so he decided to bet on himself. So he buys out his contract. He spent, he takes $750,000 out of pocket and buys himself out of top rank, which was the promoter that promoted Oscar De La Hoya and Manny Pacquiao, all these guys. And he starts, you know, Mayweather promotions. And now his business model is like, basically it's, it's vertical integration, right? Like it's to use the business school term. He's like, okay, I'm not just going to be the talent. I'm also going to be the production for the show, which means that I also collect the live gate revenue, which means that I also have to pay the other fighter. Like I have to, I have to write the check. Um, I'm also going to own a piece of the pay-per-view. I'm going to make it. He's like, I'm going to make money on every hot dog sold in this venue. I'm going to make money on the merch. I'm going to make money everywhere. And so because of that, now when he does a fight, like his, um, Manny Pacquiao fight, his uh, Conor McGregor fights, he's pulling in somewhere between 250 and $400 million. That's crazy. Himself on those fights per fight. So he, you know, more than 10 X, more like 20 X what he could make by betting on himself and building that brand. And then, then he created all the associated brands. So then he basically created, he's like, why am I, these sponsors are paying me to wear their shit. You know, why don't I just create, you know, the money team clothing line. And I'm going to like own my own clothing line rather than promoting these other clothing lines. LeBron did the same thing. He's like, why am I promoting McDonald's 
he bought equity in Blaze Pizza and is like, cool, I'll just own a piece of this chain rather than just be a sponsored athlete. Um, and so there's there's basically a bunch of a bunch of people who do this model. And then Floyd, you know, he did a, he did a couple things. One was he went nuts on the self branding, so he changed his brand from Pretty Boy Floyd to Floyd Money Mayweather. And he knew and, that people uh, were going to hate that. He knew that people were going to hate it, and he started doing hateable things. Like he would just post a photo of himself, like at a dinner table, but there's no food on the table. It's just stacks of cash everywhere. <laughs> He's like, this is how I eat or whatever. <laughs> or, you know, he would, um, you know, just go throw like a, you know, a wad of cash at somebody and just like make fun of them because they're poor. And like, they would pick up the dollars because they're like, well, this is like 10 grand. And so like he would do things that would get attention. He would do things that would build his brand. But in reality, he would look like this party, like this party guy. He owns strip clubs, never smoke, never drank. You know, like the guy trains at like three in the morning so, you know, he kind of built this brand like he's this kind of like badass or whatever. But in reality, he's like a he's like a extremely well-conditioned athlete that was like extremely disciplined and never like ran into any of those problems. But he hired Al Heyman, who Al had run. You know, Dude, who he's Al like, is? He, he's like, we have to do a whole episode on on this because Al Heyman's really intriguing. Al Heyman, if you Google his face, there's like four pictures of him on the Internet. And he's one of these guys, I think he's like famous for like, you never meet him in person, but he does everything on the phone. And he's always in the background of the most powerful boxers and fighters in the world. And before that, you know what he was doing? No. He was doing the same thing in the music industry. So he represented Janet Jackson, Whitney Houston, helped build their brands and their their whole business empires. Then he taught Floyd how the music, how musicians make their money. And he's like, oh, I need to do that. Basically, my fight is me on tour. I need to own the tour. And so I need to own the shows. I need to make the money from the tickets, not just be the fighter who goes on the stage. And so Al became his business guy on that side. And then he has Leonard Ellerby who does it on the, on the Mayweather promotion side. And like the joke, of course, about Floyd is that he can't read. And it's like, he's like, I can't read, but I, I know numbers. And like, you know, <laughs> and so he's like, you know, he, he know, he know, he's found a way to make a ton of money. He understood like the core fundamentals of, of business. Um, and knew how to put put people in place, and so he generates a lot of money. Now, some people think he's going broke because he spends so much. I think he might be. Like, I totally you know, believe that, that. That's hard to say, dude. I I totally believe that. This podcast, we we are the internet dork renaissance. We started with Adam Levine cheating on his wife, and then I think we went to like uh, the history of hedge RSU funds. option shares. Yeah, and then RSU <laughs> option shares. Then we talked about the Fed and J.P. Morgan. And then back to Mayweather and Al Heyman. You can't get this anywhere else. You, you just yeah. can't. Where they're, are you going to get all this? Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> we, we are the Chinese buffet of podcasts. <laughs> yeah. They say that like true wealth is created by being like a narrow, uh, an inch, uh, uh, an inch wide, but like a mile deep. Not here. We are, we are, a, we are right. a, a rain puddle. We are just going to cover everything just a little bit. Well, you built your whole life off being four inches long. So it all worked out for you at the end. (laughs) (laughs) And And you get comedy at the end of the show. And you get the comedy. (laughs) Average at best in in lots of different... If you're average at best at just about everything, you're kind of above average. So it works out well. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's uh, that's the show. I'm exhausted. I got to take a nap after that. (laughs) 